0: I'm Ellie Cawthorne. On today's podcast, we've got a conversation with the author and political journalist Asa Bennett. Asa is the Brexit editor for the Daily Telegraph with a background in the classics. His recent book, Rome Manifesto, Modern Lessons from Classical Politics, draws parallels between politics in ancient Rome and our own political landscape today. Our content director, David Musgrove, met up with Asa in London to find out more.
1: I'm here in our London offices uh, with Asa Bennett, whose new book, Rome Manifesto, Modern Lessons from Classical Politics, has just been published by Biteback Books. Uh, the book offers some lessons, uh, sometimes in a light-hearted fashion, that modern politicians could uh, potentially take from the way that politics was conducted in ancient Rome. Uh, so, Asa... Before we start, what period and place of Roman history are you covering? I mean, that's a big. It's a big. It's a big topic. It's a big. Uh, a, a big chronological spread. Is there any hmm. area where you focus
2: on particularly? Well, absolutely. I appreciate uh, the point in that question it is really quite fascinating because I could have gone through all. Of Roman history, you know, from the very foundation, this Romulus and Remus, to the fall of the Roman Empire. But then, if so, that book would have been twice as big and truly bulky indeed. And I'm afraid, then given having to try and balance all this amid my job uh, for the Daily Telegraph newspaper in London, reporting on Brexit and the fast-changing world of UK politics, um, I focused on the Golden Age, uh, you know, Augustus, the early days of the Empire, the fall of the Republic, and inevitably. Given things like the fall of the Roman Empire and the effective uh, British exit from the United States of Roman Empire, you know basically the best bits. I should have mentioned, of course, in my introduction,
1: that you are indeed
2: the Brexit editor for the
1: for the Daily Telegraph. Um, but your background is is from studying classics, so mm. this is this is why you've written the book to try and uh, combine the, uh, the oh, two absolutely,
2: stories. absolutely, trying to popularise it um, for an audience that. When you see the UK political scene, our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, he often refers to the classics to enrich his rhetoric in the same way do other conservative politicians like Jacob Rees-Mogg. They talk of the Praetorian Guard and you hark back to that time of Rome. I I was lucky enough to have studied classics and wanted to share this enthusiasm with readers who may know Mary Beard and may not want to get bogged down in sort of the intensity and the raw scholarship like that, but might want a synthesis of both. So that way I try and... um, popularise and draw parallels by taking all sorts of examples um, of how Romans campaigned, how the mudslinging that would happen back in the day, the electioneering, uh, or even more specific examples like what Emperor Hadrian and the wall he built across the United Kingdom to keep out the barbarians in the north, what that could Teach President Trump as he tries, with not so much success, to build a wall across Mexico to stop the Mexicans coming in.
1: Okay, we will come back to some of those themes shortly. But before we do, perhaps you could just um, sketch out for us just a, a little vignette of how Roman politics works. What, mm. what was the what was the process that uh, that happened?
2: Well, absolutely. The spirit of Roman politics is very identifiable and relatable to the present day in that rather than a greasy pole, politicians had to climb the ladder of offices, the cursus honorum, starting after a spell of military service to go up increasingly important civic ranks all the way up to the consulship. And so when you look at someone like Marcus Tullius Cicero... In this world, you had to either get ahead with impeccable familial connections or just fantastic talent. He had the latter in spades as a star hotshot lawyer and really was able to use it to wow the crowds. And we see from uh, letters that his brother wrote to him, um, trying to advise him, almost as campaign manager, the raw Machiavellian thinking you had to put in to try and win and uh, be someone to get to the top, as he did in 63 BC to be consul of Rome. Um, And so Cicero's brother writes to him suggesting things uh, like that you should basically promise voters everything they want, even if you have no intention of fulfilling this promise. You just make them feel good. They'll be glad that you're paying attention to them. You should essentially woo important people, the tribal elders who will tell their friends and family to vote for you. This is an example of patronage in spades. And at the same time, he would argue about you know going negative and would advise really to take on your enemies, dig up all sorts of allegations, you know, just go at them with a will. It was proper dirty stuff. And we know this from Cicero's speeches in the law courts. He was not afraid to get, uh, you know, in the gutter when he needed to. And above all, what the real takeaway from this was that for them you know voters need to be indulged voters need to to matter if you had lots of them with you if you had big crowd sizes you looked popular everyone wanted to be part of your bandwagon in the same way modern politicians now uh, boast about how big their crowd sizes are like president trump did at his inauguration uh in the same way they would say you needed to have people along with you this is why for example a really cynical thing roman people did were was that if you were going to law courts you know, up, up on some trumped-up charge, naturally. You would pay people to come along with you to bewail your fate, to weep, to really be up so upset and outraged. And then any passers-by would watch and think, you're a very good person. You know, my gosh, what is wrong with you? You know, in short, it was a people business, Roman politics, in the same way it is now. And it was really, Politics in a rawest fashion, and so that's why it could be so relatable. There's the ambition, there's the shameless electioneering, and above all, the struggles for power that resonate to this day. So
1: you mentioned the the cursus honorum, then the mm. sort of the ladder of power. That, it, from my very um, uh, my, my brief classical studies, it seemed like uh, a fairly um, formulated system. So you had to be an deal and that that meant like looking in charge of drains and that sort of thing. As yes, a, I, so it sounds quite like um, a local councillor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, could you could you break through that uh, if you didn't want to have to go through those processes? Could you just say I'm, I just want to get to the top without oh, of having
2: course. to do the uh, the donkey work? And and you know very much so then that leaders would try when they got to the top, like Sulla, they would try and rig the system to stop. Potential rivals coming up through the woodwork um, to make sure that they had to wait a bit, perhaps a cooling off period before they could apply and run for election for the more senior positions. And if you were truly remarkable, then you could leapfrog up the ladder um, in the same way that Julius Caesar did. But of course, admittedly, he managed to find his own way up by being appointed effective dictator in perpetuity. Um, and otherwise, there were other positions of influence you could go for. Uh, we remember that Cato the Elder was was famous for having been appointed censor, which was as powerful almost a rank as consul in that you weren't so much in charge of the day-to-day running of bureaucracy in the government, but in charge of upholding moral standards. You had the right to persecute, to prosecute, to generally hold politicians' feet to the fire over how they used public money and expenses. This is why he really infuriated the Roman political class, needless to say. And obviously, once you had the Roman Empire start, the consulship still existed, but it was a sort of foil for the emperor because who really had the power. Um, so nonetheless, there was this curious system of evolution in which then there was still popular democracy, but all the while there was a the brute force of people using the same politicking, same skills uh, to effectively become king, although that was a dirty word back then, so to become emperor. Yeah.
1: And you, you mentioned, um, uh, well, one of the themes that, that modern politics is all about is social mobility. Um, it, was there any way that uh, social mobility was a, was a thing in ancient Rome? Were people able to rise from the gutter to positions of power, or was that
2: beyond the ken? Well, it's definitely a fascinating dynamic at play in Rome, because, he, as I was saying earlier, with Cicero, what was remarkable for him was that he did not have uh, a, a long heritage in politics. There weren't sort of, previous parents of his being consuls, um, and so he was classed as what's called a novus homo, a new man. Politics. He was someone who broke the mould, as it were, um, by being elected consul without these sort of methods. And in the same way, you could see there was definitely an underclass in Rome, the slaves, um, the prisoners of war, the foreigners who'd be taken in battle. And some of them would be put to work as civil servants. Um, And then you found back then that that was something that many native Romans didn't want to do. That was a thing that slaves did. They were the ones who fought as gladiators in the arena. They were the ones who, you know, shuffled, pushed pens around or styluses as it were um, and just did all the twiddly bits that weren't very important. When actually, what would later then emerge in the later years uh, when the empire was so massive and great was that if you were an average civil servant, you could have much more power than your average senator in that sense. And so at that point, the boot was on the other foot. People were trying to suck up to these slave civil servants who'd really, you know, got up to their station. Maybe Romans were even tempted to try and do this of donkey work themselves. And so, yes, it was a place where, you know, the almost the American dream was there in, in its rawest embryonic stage. If you wanted to do something, you could. Although you still, in a way, if you had the right patronage, if you had the right skills, um, then that could really help you along.
1: Uh, okay. And if you were seeking um, public office, Was there a moral code that you were explaining to And if so, what was it?
2: The morality in Rome was a very uh, flexible concept because if you take someone like Augustus, he preached religiously as emperor about moral standards and upholding basic decency. He passed something called the Julian legislation, a series of laws that outlawed adultery and also insisted that, If you were, for example, a married Roman man and your wife had cheated on you, you were duty-bound to essentially divorce her immediately and, if necessary, kill this man because otherwise you were a pimp. You were letting this happen on the sly. All the while, he was fantastically hypocritical in this. He exiled his own daughter amid rumours that she had been playing away, that she had been cheating on random strangers in the forum. And he... Many accounts attest from Suetonius to all sorts of other biographers that he would just take women's wives as he wished, you know, go off on a dinner party with another man's wife, come back both very flustered, clearly, you know, almost in flagrante in the other room. And this didn't matter for him because he governed this cult of personality. He was supernatural. He was, you know, ultra man. He was, you know, virility where the word virtue comes from, just the manliness itself, the might of Rome. He could get away with it. However, what then Rome didn't like? There was very sort of shallow things in terms of morality. It was if you were a cheat. So if you look about money matters, this is something that people argue about a lot in modern politics. In Rome, they love to spend they love to be seen as classy. They'd have statues of the emperor in their dining room as a very done thing, you know, have lavish dinner parties and be the talk of the town. You had to spend the money to look the part. However, other people then would think you really are wasting money. You would be having tongues wag about how awful you are and just so um, over-luxuriant. And so this we get this in a lot of social customs Augustus would play to, for example. He, despite being an emperor, despite being someone of great wealth that you'd expect from a man of his station, he would be very ostentatious and try to show off how apparently humble he was. He would make his wife weave clothes in the public eye, as if, you know, by hand, as if implying that this is genuinely the sort of humble Roman method. Look, my wife is an average matron, just like you many other women in this town. Um, and he it would always propagate this myth that, you know, he was born in a humble hut, just like Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome. Um, and he very much played down his station because it's this sort of curious balance that they were trying to strike back then, as modern politicians do now, of acknowledging that, yes, they obviously are remarkable beings, given they've got to where they've got to, but, you know, they, they are as thrifty as the rest of us, you know, and yet you think you have to be remarkable, you have to spend to seem so incredible, given that a conquering general, for example, would have such gaudy triumphs done in which they would almost be rendered godlike in their own station. It's this classic hypocrisy you know, then that still lives on, very much so.
1: Well, that's very interesting. You talk about hypocrisy. I mean, hypocrisy is, in a way, the the, the worst sin that a modern politician can uh, can can deliver. It seems to me. Hmm. But is that so? Is that the same in in ancient Rome, or or were they able to get away with more hip, hypocritical actions?
2: I think it's in the same way that you see with modern politicians. If you have the style and confidence to do it, you can tough these things out. And so that's why when you look at, let's say, Julius Caesar, what helped him try and shape modern standards and decide what was appropriate was that he was the chief priest of Rome on his way up the ladder. He got elected pontifex, you know, Maximus. And so that is really came into fall when there were rumours that uh, his wife had, she was part of this female-only sort of religious sect in Rome, and they were conducting a ritual, and suddenly it was alleged a man burst in, and suggestions flew that maybe they were trying to have it off there, maybe something a bit mischievous and naughty happened. How outrageous. In this you know, the sanctitude was been broken. And of course, Caesar then immediately, because he was chief priest of Rome, divorced his wife there and then. Divorce is a very easy thing. Back then, you just said it. And if you're a man, it happened. And this gave rise to the famous quote that Caesar's wife must be above suspicion. And so he at that point knew that if he was meant to be the guardian of ethical standards, he needed to make sure that everything was far away as it could be from him. Um, that to be as clean as possible, whiter than white, to use a popular phrase. Mm. And the same way when we're talking about Augustus, then the reason why he exiled his own daughter was that he was try to seem whiter than white. But it's that classic thing where because you are, though, a remarkable male politician, in a sense, even though Julius Caesar, he was still going up to all sorts of mischievousness in his uh, personal life, that you could just get away with it, really, because also it was an inherent sexism there you could play off back then, which you may argue still exists in the present day. But it's all about the kind of confidence that those leaders would have. And they'd still, historians would still pull them up now. Um, but nonetheless, it's very flagrant how they're able to style this out
1: now, uh, a modern politician, a modern leader, has many tools um, at his disposal to speak to, to the people he wishes to speak to: um, print, internet, TV, radio. Um, Romans had none of those, um, and yet modern politicians still spend a lot of time knocking on doors trying to meet people in person. So, um, presumably, that has a, has a lot of value. How how would Roman politicians have gone about getting their messages across?
2: Well, Roman politicians very much knew the power of meeting voters face to face, because then Cicero's brother, as his electoral strategist, made clear to him he should constantly be seen in the forum. Never leave Rome. Be always meeting people, talking to them face to face. And what you saw then, by contrast, is when, for example, the Emperor Tiberius left Rome, um, basically he was scared and paranoid that everyone was out to get him and he was told by his chief Praetorian a very crafty chap called Sejanus uh, that if he didn't leave Rome he'd, his life would be in danger he he retired to his sort of palace on an island just off the coast of Italy um, called C- of Capri and rumours spread that all sorts of filthiness was afoot on that palace that it, it was just hosting orgies and up to all sorts of debauchery and shamefulness. Um, the writers, like Suetonius, are full of tales like this. And in part, that may well be because he had no way of rebutting this. You know, Obviously, there wasn't Twitter. You couldn't um, give live reports. And if anything, his channels of communication were controlled by Sejanus. He filtered the correspondence that came through. And so he had a very partial picture of what was happening in the city he was still meant to be emperor um, in. And at the same time, though, if Roman politicians did have access to things like Twitter, they would have loved it. When you look at someone like Julius Caesar and how he had to manage the communications challenge of going off to Gaul to expand the glory of Rome by colonizing the the French over there and seizing the settlements, winning the battles. At the time, the way he seized power of those forces, the troops he needed, was very controversial. You could basically argue he was desperate for a gamble that could pay off and bent the rules to take charge of some soldiers to scurry up to Gaul. And so many enemies were out to get him. They wanted to paint him as a power-hungry, lunatic, desperate for glory, just going off to serve his own ends rather than the glory of Rome. And so Caesar would try and send letters back about his exploits, what he was up to. And they. what was problematic was that his enemies would ban Those letters from being read. They would not allow them to be read in the Senate and open so that people would not be able to hear from Caesar himself what he was up to, his own narrative. They, in other words, controlled the narrative. He got around that in the end, though, because one, his supporters like Mark Antony used the procedural powers they could to ensure that his messages could finally be read and disclosed to the Caesar fans out in Rome. And two, he effectively wrote his own commentaries, the De Bello Gallico, the sort of commentaries on what he was up to, in which is written in a very cool, clinical, third-person fashion, what Caesar was up to, always in command, always in control, gets the results. His enemies sound ferocious, the Gauls, plentiful, you know, fierce foes, and each time, like some action hero, at every turn, he wins the day. And this meant that he had his own books. They were able to be read out to the voters and audience there. And he was able to fight back and really show that he was there, the expanding and winning glory for Rome. Effectively, if he had Twitter and could use that to tweet out his own commentaries, he would have done that. This was his version, putting out his own messages, using the social media of the word of mouth to really help get his narrative out. And so you do see even then while the technology wasn't there, wasn't quite as sophisticated as it is now, they knew how key the right messages were for for voters and the general public.
1: So you've talked about the voters there a couple of times, um, and a lot of time is spent by modern political parties in trying to understand which voters they need to be going for and, and how they should be targeting certain constituencies and the like. Presumably, that wasn't uh, that sort of data, that sort of analysis wasn't available to um, to, to Roman politicians, but. Did they have to try to appeal to a certain set of of people? And if so, how did they do that?
2: I think what was very apparent, if you were a Roman politician, trying to win an election, is you could not rely, if you were a man man of reasonable station and sadly, yes, it was only men who could be in these elections, unlike now with women included, is that you could not rely on just entirely the votes of your peers, the dinner party circuit.
1: Mm.
2: You know, So it could not just be the landed gentry, the aristocracy all voting for you. You had to go and deal with the masses. And this is why there was a bit of a challenge there. Generally, the votes were in the majority, the bulk, the plebes, um, and they needed that support. And so this is why you see all sorts of struggles as politicians try to engage with them. There's a rather excruciating tale of a rather aristocratic politician coming across a voter, well, an average player, but in a ditch, digging away, doing, you know, son of, man of, man of toil, working his hands to the bone, and he had slightly grimy hands, and uh, he he just basically came out this aristocrat um, and just burst out saying goodness, your hands are filthy, you know, do you walk on them? And then it's a real gaff that he didn't win the election, needless to say, you know, sort I think, word came out. If it was recorded by the historians at that point, it was clearly a horrendous foot-in-mouth situation, just finding these farmers all rather strange-looking. And yet, at the same time, when you saw the way that populism was back then, you know, we think of it as a new ph- phenomenon now, it really worked if you tried to appeal to the so-called mob. People like Gracchus, the Gracchus brothers, rather. These two people, they were from the landed gentry, yet they stood as tribunes of the people um, by basically championing very popular causes like fighting to have soldiers being able to keep hold of their farms when they came back from wars, rather than losing them to penury and having them taken over by property speculators. They really played up this sort of anti-establishment feeling in which they would give speeches in the forum, dramatically turning their backs on the Senate as if to defy them because they effectively were championing this idea of redistributing land to give it back to the workers, the soldiers, and not to have it in the hands of this you know, property-speculating, you know, investing elite. And there's this whole to and fro with the senators and the vested interests wanting to combat the Gracchi. But the people loved them. And this is the thing. This is why there was an early stage of mob politics that they were really coming out in the streets for them and the Senate really had to have a challenge on their hands trying to work out how to deal with this sort of outbreak of feeling in which, at the time, the, the senatorial elite effectively saw them as basically Marxists, you know, trying to redistribute the land, give it back to them, um, really to take them on. Admittedly, and this is the problem with Rome, it's all very sort of bloodthirsty and ugly at times, the politics spirals aspire out of control. You know, the mob politics did then go wrong in that the Gracchi did meet very... Unsavory ends, but they obviously were known back then. For at least passing down a lot in that they managed to help the workers, they helped their soldiers, they helped their people, and also gave laid the foundations for an early welfare state. In that there was a an early version of a grain supplement that was granted in their time as tribunes fighting and proposing laws um, for the people who put them there, and they delivered at least that. And we see to this day how far the welfare policy has grown and flourished
0: still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: If I had to pick one, it would say Augustus Caesar as the first emperor. He knew how to play the cult of personality, the spin work that you had to do, and also the blatant hypocrisy that he would espouse morally and politically. He was just an opportunist like no other. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Okay. Um, let's um, let's let's throw in a, a couple of quick fire questions. Let's assume that I am an aspiring politician today, and I want to learn from uh, from my classical forebears. Um,
2: how do I give a good speech? Make sure to learn it. Speak from the heart, not a teleprompter. Make sure to practice, and perhaps do some vocal exercises as well, because no one likes it if you have too reedy a voice. Instead, be able to have big, dramatic gestures. And just, again, practice makes perfect. This is the thing. The parrot fashion style of learning, you know, they really swore by that, the Romans. Know what you want to say and say it with conviction. Uh, Thank you. And
1: what about my hair? What should I do with my hair?
2: Make sure it's long and luscious as possible. If you are struggling, that's unfortunate. Well, that's the thing. If you <laughs> if you don't have much, of your struggling there, then there are accessories you can go for. Put a wreath on, perhaps. Um, ultimately, you may, if you can't find a good accessory, you're just going to have to grin and bear it. Then, because the Romans were a very shallow lot, the same way the voters might be now, they may not think you're quite as dynamic as the lusciously haired rival that you're trying to face. But, you know, obviously there are great heroes and leaders like Churchill and Caesar who were able to get far, even though they were struggling in the follicular department. If I've got any skeletons in my closet,
1: is there any way that I should tackle that? Should I hide them or should I come out with them, do you think?
2: I think it's that if you've got skeletons in your closet, just know how you spin them best, how you work with them. If they're going to come out, you have to have the best commanding narrative there, because if the people are behind you, you can tough these things out. Granted, historians might throw things at you just in the same way that with Nero, they pilloried him and accused him of effectively setting fire to Rome just so he could play off that for popularity. But Equally, then, other historians will be able to write saying that, you know, you're a good person. The worst that could be said to you is that you just liked playing the liar too much and the Roman classes didn't like that sort of Greek customs. You know, the debate can continue. As long as you know what you want to say, these skeletons, they are survivable. Obviously, in the history books, though, the debate will still go on about your reign and your time in politics.
1: Okay, let's assume I've got into power. Um, is it ever a good idea for me to meddle in other nations' uh, affairs?
2: Frankly, do it with caution. Because we've seen from when Roman generals have tried to go into the Middle East, as Crassus did, a plutocrat who fancied a go at being just as successful in the battlefield as Caesar, it ended so badly for him. He was ill-equipped, ambushed by the Parthians, and Essentially, the slaughter was so tragic that it is widely said that his head was chopped off, used as a prop in a play, and had he had molten gold poured into his mouth just to add insult to the absolute injury. And so we even see today that, sadly, politicians have not learnt the lessons from Crassus as they find the Middle East an endless source of military glory and action galore.
1: Any suggestions as to how I might negotiate a good deal if I was looking to do that?
2: Negotiate a good deal? What for
1: in any in any power situation if i'm looking to to get the get the uh, the best out of a a negotiation
2: well if you look at the deals that romans would do at the time always just seize the opportunity because you saw alliances were constantly being done for convenience julius caesar would do them with pompey and then betray him later on the battlefield when the chance took be unafraid to be shamelessly opportunistic because then the romans knew that where there was a chance, you had to take it. Otherwise, your rival would.
1: Um, And uh, finally, if I've I've had my time and power and I'm uh, leaving office or I've left office, any thoughts as to how I might uh, protect my legacy, secure my legacy for the future?
2: Make sure as many people as possible are writing biographies about you, glowing in tributes. Because we saw from letters that Cicero was so keen to do it that he was writing desperately to his friends the learned poets of Rome, saying, you're, you're brilliant writers. Would you like to write about my consulship? I'm a new man. I broke in. I, I defied the establishment. I did all this. I saved Rome. And they turned him down. And so it was so awkward for him, he ended up writing his own biography, which is a quite remarkable reading because he naturally believes he's the greatest consul Rome's ever seen. And so above all, make sure that you are impressive enough that other people want to write about you, not just you by your own pen. Um,
1: Okay, and then uh, a couple of questions that touch on um, specific issues from today. Fake
2: news is a big story today.
1: Was there such a thing as fake news in ancient Rome?
2: Oh, completely. Many Roman emperors, if they could look back on how they've been received in history books, would argue that there's all sorts of fake rumours and suggestions. Let's take Caligula, one of the most notorious figures, um, very much uh, a source of endless tales of debauchery and outrage. One of the tales that's often quoted is that he wanted to make his horse a senator as a sign of lunacy, people suggest. But actually, it's, you could argue, a popular misconception of the fact that he hated the senators so much and thought they were such idiots that he effectively said, oh, I might as well make my horse a senator. And then because of that point at the end of his reign and time in office, people were wanting to vilify him for the sake of writers trying to impress later emperors and to generally show off to those later emperors how wonderful things are, unlike that time of Nero and Caligula, that would be easy. They'd just twist the facts a bit. No one would protest. Obviously, you wouldn't be able to sue posthumously. And at the same time with Nero, although now we look at him as a terrible person who then vilified uh, the Christians and persecuted them after the great fire of Rome so unfairly, Actually, many writers back then acknowledged that going after the Christians, it was was a thing you just generally did if you were a Roman because they were perceived as a very sort of odd cult at the time. And this is acknowledged by many of the writers. Very intriguingly, though, the fake news about Christians abounded plentifully in these sources and that we know from the early Christian writers who came in after this pagan era that the Romans thought the Christians were a sort of cult of incestuous cannibals, in that, and the sources, the reason for this is absurd when we think of it now. They would hear the Christians talking about how they're all, you know, oh, brother, and oh, I love you, dear sort of brother. And, you know, this is a Christian love, as we know. This is, when they talk about brotherhood, it's a brotherhood, you know, of fellowship of, in, the, in Jesus Christ. But at that point, they took it literally. They thought these people actually love each other in a sort of passionate, erotic sense, and they actually are all part of some weird extended family. And when you think, okay, where, this, where does the cannibalism come from as a rumour? Well, the transubstantiation ritual then the idea that... the bread would be the body of Christ and the wine that you drink at rituals would be the blood of Christ. They didn't quite take that in the spirit intended. They thought it was genuinely that you'd be eating little sort of bodies and drinking blood. And above all then, you could understand maybe then why given the Christian law at the time was, uh, in Book of Revelations and all the sort of apocalyptic scenarios, that there'll be a divine fire cleansing the world. That when there was a fire in Rome, that it became so easy almost to pin it on the Christians. So yes, just fake news was very rich indeed, whether it was whether you were an emperor or whether you were a persecuted minority.
1: And uh, another point, um, the Romans were quite famous for building walls. Um, Mm. That's a current concern for some politicians. Um, Aside from the defensive attributes of building wall politically, is that a good
2: idea? Politically, it serves a very good idea if you want to seem strong and have a great big symbol of your imperial might. And you can understand then why Emperor Trump, I mean, sorry, President Trump may want to build his own wall, however difficult it may be, because as we saw with Hadrian, it was a fantastic fantastic sign for the barbarians living in the north of Britain of who they were dealing with when they approached uh, the Roman territory. And at the same time, we know it, it primarily did serve as a symbol. Hadrian got it built. Admittedly, he did not have to deal with the same level of opposition that President Trump does have to. But it's a matter of legacy, isn't it? Because it's known now as Hadrian's Wall. Yet intriguingly, it later was for a period known as Severus's wall, because a later emperor came along and rebuilt it. It had to be repaired and fresh stone was put in to this construction. And so there's almost a terrifying thought for President Trump that if, let's say, if a later president comes along Perhaps one of Barack Obama's daughters becomes president. And the wall's been built so much that she has to try and rebuild it and renovate it again. You could almost imagine that the wall then would no longer be known as the Trump Wall. Oh, mighty Trump. Look at that wall. Oh, it's so great of President Trump. It's so be the Obama Wall. And then what legacy would he have left if he, after all this, managed to build any part of his wall and it just goes to someone else? Okay,
1: final question. Um, we're, we're, we're running out of time, but I wonder um, if there's uh, one particular Roman political figure who you would identify as someone who would prosper particularly in today's political landscape, either here in the UK or in the US. Is there someone who you think would have it now that uh, that would make uh, make an impact?
2: I'm spoiled for choice, really, but if I had to pick one, I would say Augustus Caesar as the first emperor. He knew how to play the cult of personality. the spin work that you had to do, and also the blatant hypocrisy that he would espouse morally and politically. He was just an opportunist like that, but he would fit right in. He learnt at the feet of Julius Caesar, who, as we've been discussing, did know how to put out good narratives about himself and good messages. And so he was effectively the real early example of a modern politician. And so you you can really understand why people like Mark Zuckerberg look up to him, they see him as that sort of idol, because he dealt with his enemies, he had that authority, and he knew how to make sure that everyone remembered him in glowing terms, because he wrote his own history, effectively.
1: Thank you, Asa. And your book, Romanifesto, Modern Lessons from Classical Politics, is out now from Biteback. So if you want to understand more about uh, lessons you can take from uh, classical politics, uh, then that's the book to read. Thank you very much.
0: That was Asa Bennett. You can find plenty more on ancient and political history on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when Charles Emerson will be discussing the global aftershocks of the First World War.
2: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control?
1: The Western world was asleep.